You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. This morning we're in Psalm 46, and we're in uh, the summer in the Psalms, and we come to a fitting psalm on a fitting day, July the 4th, when we celebrate our independence as Americans. I'm a proud American. I'm a proud patriot. I believe our nation is um, probably the greatest nation in the history um, of humanity, and so I'm thankful for all that God has done. But what I want you to be aware of this morning is that judgment is coming, not only to America and not only to the nations and not only to all of humanity, but judgment is coming to you and to me. And the 46th Psalm is about judgment. Now, maybe you didn't get up this morning to come to church to hear a message about judgment, but maybe that's exactly what we need to hear. And what the text is telling us is this, how to be safe when judgment comes. How to be safe when judgment comes. And there's something that I'm going to say um, a few times in the, the message. And here's, here's what I want you to think about. What matters when you die should be, should, should be what matters while you live. What matters when you die should be what matters when you live. The psalmist in Psalm 46 is saying, don't look at what's in front of you. Some of you are angry at somebody right now. There's somebody in this room you don't like, and you're just like, I just don't even want to be around that person. Some of you are having marriage problems, and you're just like, I, I just, I, I'll tell you what, the sooner I can get this woman out of my life or this man out of my life, then I am finally going to be happy. Um, I want to challenge you this morning and tell you that what matters when you die is what should matter while you are alive. And if we could focus on the day of our death, if we could focus on judgment, it would change how we see life in the present. And so the psalmist is trying to get us to look forward, to look to the end, the end of our life and the end of time when there will be judgment. And so if you will look at the 46th Psalm with me, I want to read these 11 verses. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Right? So he starts out with this thematic statement. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Stop and think about that. He moves to a, a, a second scene, if you will. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So there's a river, there's a city, and God is present in the river and in the city. God is in the midst of her in this city. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The God who spoke in creation can speak and melt the things that he has created. And then he gives us this refrain, verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah, verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease 
to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then finally, he gives us this, this challenge of application. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Look to the end. Look to the end. A lot of things are going on and we worry about and fret about and concern ourselves about and are embroiled in and tangled up in a lot of things in this world. But look to the end. He's like, stop it. Stop it. Be still. He's not saying be still and, and relax. He's not saying be still and, you know, find some relax, you know, liquid relaxer of some sort. He's saying, stop. Just stop. And above all things that you know, you need to know that I am God. You need to know that, that I will be exalted among the nations. What about the nations that don't exalt you? What about the United States of America? That obviously, in all of its greatness and its history, is not in the hour that we live exalting the Lord. I will be exalted among the nations. This is coming. The nations are going to know that the God of Israel is the God of all of humanity. I will be exalted in the earth. And he repeats the refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There, there are three things I want you to see in the text before we look at the application of verses 10 and 11. Number one, what we see in the text clearly is God's grace in judgment. God's grace in judgment. Verse 1 is God's grace, but verses 2 and 3 are God's judgment. And I want, you, I want you to look with me at verses 2 and 3. First, I want you to consider the problem of God's judgment. And what he's pointing to in verses 2 and 3 is initially the past judgment of God. This is a direct reference. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, it is a direct reference. According to Isaiah chapter 54 and verses 9 and 10, it is a direct reference to the, the Noahic flood. It's the direct reference to the worst thing, the most catastrophic thing that ever happened in the history of humanity was the flood, where God said in Genesis chapter 6 that man is sinful continually. I'm going to wipe man out. And then God takes eight people and he puts them in an ark and God himself closes the door with all of these animals and everything that had the breath of life in its nostrils was destroyed on the face of the planet. This is the past judgment that he's talking about. This is as bad as it has ever gotten. Secondly, I think he's looking to future judgment, the end of the age when all the nations will be judged. That is as bad as it will ever get. When all of humanity stands before God and God and in his holiness judges sinful man. And we see that in the text. He's talking about the nations raging. Humanity in its coordinated effort of rebellion against God. And God says, you can rage if you want to. You can rebel against me if you want to. You can deny me if you want to. I will be exalted. So there's past judgment, there's future judgment, but there's present judgment. This psalm is written in direct correlation to 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. And if you read 2 Kings 18 and 19, Hezekiah is the, one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. 
And Hezekiah is trying to lead the southern kingdom, Judah, the northern kingdom, I think if my memory is correct, has already been taken into captivity. But there's this guy named Sennacherib, and Sennacherib is, is a warrior for the Assyrian army. And Sennacherib comes to Hezekiah, and he says, Hezekiah, um, we're going to come and wipe you out just, just like we wiped out the northern kingdom. And we've got this, this whole history, this whole resume of people that we've destroyed. And Hezekiah says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something to try to appease you. I'm going to give you all of the gold that I, we have in the land and all the silver. And so they go into the temple and they get all of the gold. And they get all of the silver and they give it to Sennacherib, hoping that it will appease Sennacherib. But Sennacherib's like, I know y'all are rebellious people and I know that I can't trust you. So Sennacherib goes outside the wall of Jerusalem and Sennacherib begins to taunt the, the people of Israel who are trapped inside, the, 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 it's, it's, uh, they're stockaded inside. They can't get out. Supplies can't get in. They can't get out. So they're stuck there. And Sennacherib is saying, hey, you folks need to give up. There are other nations that had other gods, and I destroyed those nations. Their gods were no match for me and my gods. You better give up. Hezekiah says, what am I going to do? He goes to Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet says, we're not giving up. He says, go and, and lay this letter out before God on the altar and let us go to the Lord in prayer. And if you read 2 Kings chapter 19, what you find out is when Israel, who was in their weakest point under judgment from Sennacherib and Assyria, when they were at their weakest, you come to the end of 2 Kings 19 and you find out that there was an army of 185,000 people there that were waiting to move in and destroy them. The, the catapults were ready to start flinging the rocks, to start flinging the armaments, to start throwing the missiles, to start doing everything that they could to destroy the protection, the fortress that Israel had established. And the next morning, when Israel goes out, thinking that this could be the day of judgment, God had judged their enemy and destroyed 185,000 men, and they were laying there dead. So this text is talking to us about three different kinds of judgment very clearly. There's past judgment in Genesis. There's future judgment when, when Jesus Christ comes back and everyone will recognize him. Every knee will bow, Philippians chapter 2, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's the present judgment that Israel finds itself under in correlation to these verses. So that is the problem of God's judgment. But secondly, I want you to notice the solution of God's grace because we're talking about God's grace in judgment. The solution of God's grace is verse 1. God is, God is, God is, God is, God is. you got to start there. You can't get too far past that. We want to run to the fact that he's our refuge and he's our strength. But if you go too quickly by those five letters, God is, you miss the point of him being your refuge and your strength and your very present help in a time of trouble. Don't miss God is. Prosperity theology wants to miss God is and wants to say, I have or I deserve. God is our powerful help. Here's what he's saying. In, in the worst imaginable situation, God is God alone. Nothing else is but God. God is our refuge. The word refuge would be connected to the concept of salvation. 
A refuge is a stronghold into which we can flee and defend ourselves from outside forces. God is our refuge. Run to Him. Run behind these walls. Hide in Him. Let Him protect you. But God is also our strength. Something is happening externally where we are protected by a refuge, by a wall, by a stronghold, by a fortress. But something is happening internally where we are strengthened on the inside even in the midst of trouble. It's a source of inner strength that enables us to endure when in the midst of tumult, uh, calamity, pressure. There's outward protection. There's inner peace. God alone is the one who provides through his inner presence our refuge and our strength. Let us, let us use the illustration of the text. Imagine the whole world for 120 years is making fun of Noah. All of their voices saying, what in the world are you doing? Who is this God you're talking about? We don't believe in this God. Come look at this idiot over here who's building a 500-foot-long, 50-feet-tall boat. And nobody knows what a boat is. And he says there's going to be a flood. And nobody knows what a flood is. He says it's going to rain. And nobody knows what rain is. He's an idiot. And I would imagine that the seven other people that were getting on the ark with him, I would imagine Noah had some days that he was doubting. But all of a sudden, now, the waves are crashing in. The mountains are falling in. The world is completely being turned upside down. Erosion is occurring. Water is coming from beneath. Water is coming from above. God's people are in the ark. The ark is closed. Imagine when the water got deep enough for that 510-foot-long boat to be lifted up. And all of those boards were together. And I don't know exactly how he put them together, but he didn't have modern technology like they have at the ark. They didn't have the the the... the the metal pieces and the bolts. and Imagine what they felt knowing that they were protected from without but also wondering, is this thing going to fall apart? I would imagine there was some shifting and I would imagine there was some moving. I would imagine there was some rocking and I would imagine there was some rolling and I would imagine there was some fear and I would imagine they wondered, since this was the first time they were on a boat and they're looking, is everything tilts this way and is everything tilts this way and as the waves lift up that big vessel and drop it down. I don't know if you've ever been on a big cruise ship when the waves were lifting it up and dropping it down, but it's a scary experience. But they were safe on the inside. And so he's telling us that there is this grace that provides for us an ark and it will protect us on the outside. But even when the, the, the winds are blowing and the, the waters are rising and the mountains are falling, that there will be interior strength, although we're right in the middle of it. He's a very, he's our refuge and our strength, but he's a very present help. The word very present means just what it says, abundantly present. It means the Lord lets himself be found exceedingly. It means that God is conspicuously present. In other words, God is a very present help. God is a conspicuous help. God makes himself readily available, it seems like, especially in times of trouble. The word trouble means distress or judgments. And here's what the text is saying. When we are in trouble, God is more than willing to be found. So often when we're in trouble, we look to God for relief. We look for God to make the trouble go away. The text is telling us that when we are in trouble, our capacity to find God is magnified even if the problem isn't resolved. That's what he's saying. All these things are happening. God is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in a time of trouble. 
What good news that is. The help that we find in this very present presence is the presence of none other than Jesus Christ. It's not favorable circumstances that is what we should consider our deliverance, but it is the presence of Jesus Christ, a very present help in a time of trouble. The situation that you find yourself in this morning may be bad, but God will be a very present help. Don't fear staying in tumultuous times for the rest of your life. Fear going through the rest of your life without His presence. Don't fear going. Don't fear staying in tumultuous times for the rest of your life. Fear going through the rest of your life without his, ple- his presence. And Noah pleads with us. And Isaiah pleads with us. And the prophets plead with us. And Jesus pleads with us. Repent. Repent. Judgment is coming. Flee the wrath to come. A flood is coming. Repent. An invading nation or nations are coming. Repent. Sin will be judged. Nations will be judged. God alone will be exalted. But if we are in His grace, if we are in the ark, if we are in the fortress, if we are being strengthened internally, the psalmist says, after explaining all of that, we will not fear. We will not fear. That's not easy. I never drive over a bridge that I don't wonder if it's going to fall in while I'm driving over it. Is anybody that messed up? Especially those bridges that go up like this, you know. Especially when you see buildings falling into the ground. Who wants to go rent a, a, you know, a high-rise condo for vacation? Will you get on the elevator? Will you go out on the... No, you'll fear. He says, no, no, if we are in... Christ, if God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear no matter how bad it gets. There is a place of grace in judgment, and it is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. God judged his son so that he could lavish us with grace. Would you run in repentance to his grace this morning? The second thing we see is not grace and judgment, but we also see God's strength and weakness. You can see it in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, the city. God is in the midst of her, the city. She shall not be moved. Hold on just a minute. You're telling me that in judgment all of the, all of the mountains are being moved. You're telling me that the, everything is crashing into the sea. But now there is this city, this city in, which houses the people of God, this city which houses God himself, and this city will not be moved. God will help, help her when the morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. We see God's grace and judgment, but we see God's strength and weakness. And, and I want you to consider, first of all, as we think about this text, the obvious weakness of God's people. And the, the first thing about their weakness I want you to consider is the weakness of their past because this is, a, this is an obscure people that God chooses to be his people. He takes this man, Abraham, 
and picks him out of nowhere and he takes Abraham where there is no nation and he makes a nation and these people, they, they morph into millions of people over time. But there was this obscure beginning and by the time we get to this place, there is this little strip of land there in the Middle East where God says, these are my people and this is the land that I've given them. And there is this little city called Jerusalem that is probably not really impressive on the world scale. And there is a man, the greatest guy in their history was a man named David who Samuel had to go out and take from running around with the sheep. He didn't have this great heritage of, of this royal bloodline. No, he was this guy that spent his time shepherding the sheep. This is not impressive at all. There is a weak history for the people Israel. There is a weak city. This city is weakened by the blockade. It's, it's, it's weakened uh, by the fact that there is no water. There is no food. There is no currency. All of their gold has been given to Sennacherib. There is an intimi intimidating enemy, and they are sure to be crushed by the Assyrians. So there is a weak city, and there is a weak nation. This text is in direct reference when you look at... Um, Go down to verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. When the morning dawns is a direct reference to Exodus 14. If you go back and read Exodus 14, the children of Israel have, have left Egyptian bondage and, and they're, they're running for safety. But all of a sudden, Pharaoh says... Get the army together and go chase those scoundrels down. Go chase those slaves down. These slaves who don't know how to fight. These slaves who don't know how to defend themselves. These slaves who don't have any weapons. Go chase them down and bring them back. I don't want them to go. And so they're running. They're running from, from uh, um, Pharaoh's army. They find themselves on a peninsula with nowhere to go except across the Red Sea, and, and God opens the sea during the night, and they cross the sea on dry ground, and then the Egyptian army finds themselves in the same sea that God's people crossed over cleanly, and all of a sudden, the water crashes down on them, and when the morning dawned, the helpless, weak people of God who could do nothing to defend themselves against the Egyptian army looked out when the morning dawned and saw that their enemy was destroyed. This is exactly what he's talking about. This is, a, this is a, a weak nation that found themselves in terrible trouble with absolutely no way out. Reminds me of the disciples running to the tomb. And when the morning dawned, that's what the text says, they realized that the tomb was empty, that Jesus rose victorious and gave his victory to us. And then there's a weak future, the nation's rage. And we see the nation's raging in Psalm 2, and we see reference to that in Acts chapter 4, quoting Psalm 2. The world will forever be stirred up and more powerful than God's people. Let us come to grips with that. Let us come to grips with the fact that we are going to be weak if we identify with Jesus Christ. Let us come to grips with the fact that the church is going to be weak culturally and in society. We're not going to take over society. We're going to be despised by society. If we stand for the gospel, if we stand on the truth of Scripture, the world is not going to love us. Let us get over trying to make the world love us. Let us love them. Let us love them with the love of Christ. Let us love them enough to proclaim good news to them. 
Let us love them enough to lay down our lives, but the church is going to be weak. So there's this obvious weakness of God's people. They have a weak past. They have a weak city. They are a weak nation. They, they have a weak future as we look forward even to where we are now. But then I want you to think about the obvious strength of God's presence because the text is telling us that while there is this people that are weak and this people that should be, if we're going to do uh, militaristic calculations, they should be crushed by Sennacherib's army. Notice what the text says. It says, there is a river. There is a river. <laughs> there, is a, there is a river. There is a source of strength that the enemy can't touch. When the enemy is doing everything in his power, when he is showing his strength, when he's snarling with his teeth, when he has us outnumbered, and when he's taunting us, and that's what Sennacherib was doing to them, when his reasoning powers are superior and his threats make perfect sense, and we think we are toast, we have this message that comes, and it says, there's a There's a river. It's a literal river. <laughs> Hezekiah, in anticipation of being besieged, dug a tunnel somewhere between 1,800 and 2,000 feet deep, and they accessed a river that started outside the city but flowed into the city. So while Sennacherib said, I've got these people right where I want them, and in three or four more days they're just going to thirst to death, there is a river, a literal river. But this river, we've got to understand, flows like a, a seamless thread throughout human and biblical history. I love Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is walking along. There's these two guys are walking along, and, and they're like, what in the world's going on over in Jerusalem? Did you hear about what happened to the man Jesus? And, and Jesus began with the law and the prophets to tell them everything all the way through Scripture about him. It all points to him. This river flows directly into heaven. There is a river. And if you, look at, if you look at Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, we can see this river flowing out. And this is, what, this is what the writer of Psalm 46 wants us to see. And this is what we desperately need to see. You need to look beyond what you're going through right now. We need to look beyond what we're experiencing right now. And we need to look to the end. We need to look to the end. What matters when you die should be what matters while you live. Look to the end of the story. Listen to Revelation. Listen, about, listen to this river. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, there is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and the nations are not going to be healed until the end. They're not going to be healed. Go to verse 17. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. There is a river. And according to John chapter 4, Jesus is that river. Where can I get this water, the Samaritan woman says. And Jesus said, uh, I, the, you get it from the Messiah, and I'm the Messiah. You can get the water right here. There is a river. There is, in, in all of the turmoil, in all of the things that are going on, there is this river that flows throughout history, and there is an invitation for you to come and drink from that river. 
When you drink from that river, it radically transforms everything about you. This river is Jesus. Secondly, there is a city. And, and he says there is this city, and certainly he's talking about the city of Jerusalem, but there is this concept, this idea of the city of God. There is the literal city in its immediate context. In the greater context, he's talking about the people of God who have been set apart from the world. But, but there is another city, and it's the city that Abraham was looking for. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, he, he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham, at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, it says that there were promises made to Abraham that he never experienced, yet those promises sustained him all the way to the point of his death. Why? Because he was looking for something that was more important to him than what God could give to him in this life. He was looking for something that was more valuable. Therefore, when he said, this is where the value is, it changes how I live in the immediate. That's what the psalmist wants us to see. That's what he's trying to get at. Look to the end. There is this city, and God is in the midst of the city. You can go to Revelation chapter 21. And again, it's interesting how these things look back and then point forward, look back to the judgment of God and point forward to the grace of God. But, but Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what we're looking forward to. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There is a river that is flowing. Come and drink. There is a city and you want to be an inhabitant of that city. There is the morning dawn, and I've already mentioned that. The exodus, the resurrection, and the morning dawn where 185,000 of the enemy of God, they just walked out and they were dead. And they had no explanation for it. And then there is a voice. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of all that's going on in the world, and even in the midst of judgment, while the nations are raging and the kingdoms are tottering, do we live there or don't we? The nations are raging and the kingdoms are tottering. But he utters his voice. <laughs> he just speaks. And the earth melts. The word of God. The truth of God's word will stand forever. Are you resting your life on the truth of God's word? Are you looking to the end of life? Are you finding refuge and strength? We see God's grace and judgment. We see God's strength and weakness. And in God's strength and weakness, there's this, this obvious benefit to God's people. Listen to what the text says. The text says there is gladness. There's gladness. Notice, he says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It means it makes the people in the city of God glad. Gladness is never found in fleeting circumstances. Sustained gladness is only found in future hope. Sustained gladness is only found in future hope. 
I had the occasion to go to my, when I grew up, my pastor's wife, um, she died. So a few weeks ago, I went to the funeral. We've had some of our folks have lost their parents, family members in recent days. If there is not a Savior to redeem us from judgment, then there is no future hope. But the thing that makes me glad, the thing that gives me sustained gladness, is not that, that I'm, I'm living where I want to live and driving when I want to drive and eating what I want to eat and watching what I want to watch on Netflix and getting together and everybody getting along in my family. Those things won't make you happy. They just won't. The only thing that will produce sustained gladness is future hope that is, that is resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and I'm, I'm drinking from that river and I'm, I'm living in that city but I'm looking for that city and I'm not trying to get settled here but I'm looking for and living for that city whose builder and maker is God when I can go and spend the, all eternity in His presence. There is gladness. There is gladness in knowing. I talked to a buddy of mine this week. His name's Bruce Schmidt. Uh, Bruce was the guy that I went to Africa to work with. He's got stage four prostate cancer that's metastasized into his pelvis. It's in his bones, three hot spots in his bones. They've given him one to two years to live. He's 66 years old. If you're, if you're in your 30s, you think, wow, he's lived long enough. But if you're 62 like me, you're thinking, that's a young man. I called him this week and I talked to him. He, he said a few things, but he wasn't worried. <laughs> he wasn't worried. He wasn't concerned about his eternity. He was concerned about his children's eternity. He was concerned, concerned about his friend's eternity. Why? Because it was all already settled. He had future hope. Future hope sustains us at our lowest moment, in our darkest hour. There is this city and there is gladness because of future hope. Secondly, there is presence. What are the benefits to God's people? There is presence. While the world is screaming and yelling, there is a presence. It is the presence of God that brings peace and calm. There is stability. Notice what he says. He says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Everything else is being stirred up, and there's dust, and there's foam, and there's noise, and there's tumult everywhere. But we're not moved. We're not moved. And then he, closed, he, he comes to the end of this. I, I believe it's the second stanza, verse 7, and he says this. He says, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Who is the Lord of hosts? He is the Lord Almighty. He is the all-powerful, victorious God. He is the God who will not be defeated. He is the God who will not compromise. He is the God who will not negotiate. He is the Lord of hosts. He says, the Lord of hosts. With all of these things going on, he's like, this God that's fighting those battles is with us. The term with us is, is, is synonymous with, um, with Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And there's going to be a child born, and that child's name is going to be Emmanuel, born of a virgin, Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking about. The, the Lord of hosts is with us, God with us. And then he says the God of Jacob. Why does he say the God of Jacob? Why doesn't he say the God of Abraham? 
Well, Abraham was a great guy. Why don't he say the God of Isaac? Well, Isaac was better than Jacob. Why did he say the God of Jacob? Jacob, Yaakov. Jacob means grabber of the heel. It means he'll trip you up. It means he'll deceive you. Everybody's like, I'm going to name my child Jacob, a good biblical name. It means he will trip you up. <laughs> I, I think it's a great name. If you did that, I would. if I had another child, I would name him Jacob. Don't get mad at me, okay? But he goes to Jacob. Jacob was the least of the patriarchs. Jacob had the most messed up life. He's saying there is this warring God who wins battles and he is with us. And he's, he's saying the God of Jacob, this God of grace. Aren't you glad he's a God of grace? I'm glad he's a God of this God of grace is our fortress. And the word fortress here means a stronghold of inaccessible height. A stronghold. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to fly over and, and, and drop down out of a helicopter because this thing is higher than a helicopter can fly. Nobody's going to take a rope and, and throw it up and hook it onto the side of it and, and pull up to the, to the and get into the fortress. Nobody's getting in. It's an impenetrable fortress. It's an inaccessible fortress. The third thing we see in the text for, for the major outline is this, God's sovereignty over history. So we see, we see God's grace and judgment. We see God's strength and weakness. But we see God's sovereignty over history. And he wants us to see that because he wants us to look to the end. He wants us to see how it all ends up so that will shape how we live today. Come behold. Come behold. When he says, come behold, it means this. We must be assured in our hearts and rest in the fact of God's sovereignty. That's what he said. The come behold means you look at something and be certain of it. Come behold. Be, be assured in our hearts and rest in the fact that God is sovereign. Behold. Hold on to the fact of the sovereignty of God, especially when your world is falling apart, especially when judgment falls. Don't doubt that God is in complete control when it seems like everything is out of control. Don't doubt God is in complete control when it seems like everything is out of control. Come and behold the works of the Lord. That is His sovereignty. He, how He, behold how He has brought, He caused desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. And he makes wars to cease not by negotiating, but by conquering. God's not interested in negotiating with you or me. He's not interested in negotiating with important political figures. He's not interested in that. You will either be still and know that he is God and that he will be exalted among the nations, or you will be conquered. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God is sovereign over history. While the outcome is peace, the process is judgment. God is not a negotiator. He is a conqueror. But let us rest assured that we are not lost in the grand scheme of the sovereign plan of God. And you do not have to be destroyed by the judgment of God if you will run to a sovereign God who sent his only son to die in your place for your sin, that you might have eternal life. And you will not have to fear when desolations come or wars are won by him or he takes the bow of the enemy and breaks it and he takes the spear of the enemy and he shatters it. 
you know, they're bringing the bow and it breaks and they throw the spear and he catches it and they shoot the bullets and he catches them in his teeth. He is almighty God. And then finally, we see verses 10 and 11, our response in humility. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Everything is all shaken up, but God is not shaken. What is, what is he saying to us? He's saying, be still. This is not comfort to the weary and harassed. It is a rebuke to the restless and troubled world. We're wringing our hands and we're worried and, and we're, we're fretful. And he's like, quiet! Stop it! Just stop it! Mark 4.39, our, our Lord who was sovereign over all things when the sea was raging. And he's a picture of one who is calm in the midst of the sea. And he stood up and he said, peace be still. Just stop it and, and be quiet. Cease and desist. Surrender. Surrender. Be still is, is like um, the, the word comes from the thought of, of hay and a flame. And now you don't know, maybe you've never seen hay burn, but certainly you've probably seen pine straw burn, and you, you, or you take your leaves and you burn them and, and, and you pile them up, and there's this great big pile, and all of a sudden the flame may be, may, may be burning beneath all of that on the inside of it, and then when what's beneath it um, is burned up, what's on top of it has nothing to do but collapse into the fire. And when he says, be still, he's saying, just collapse on me. Just collapse on me. Just fall on me. Stop it. Let your, let your tired arms drop. Give up your hopes and dreams of self-glory and personal power and human accomplishment and material acquisition. Give up your hopes that you've placed in your strategy and how you're killing yourself trying to make life work. Just be still. But don't just be still. <laughs> you know, he's not, he's not saying just take something to zone out. He said, be still and know that I am God. And what does it mean to know that he is God? Hebrews eleven six 6 says, He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So there has got to be some assurance in my heart that I know that he is God, which means there's got to be some assurance in my heart that I know that I am not God. That I know that I do not create, that I know that I do not control outcomes, that I know that I'm not the center of the universe or the center of my family's universe or the center of my universe. When I, when I, when I, I stop and understand that He is God, it's not about my exaltation. Many of us are in competition with God because we want to exalt ourselves. He said, but you be still, you surrender, you give up, you cease and desist, you collapse before me in worship and know, if you know nothing else, you need to know that I am God. You need to know that I am God, he said. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted at the end of the age when judgment 
comes, there are going to be those that are standing before God saying, I resist your will. I resist your way. I resist your work. I resist your power. I want to do things my way. By the way, we got it from Adam and Eve in the garden. God's way wasn't good enough. They just wouldn't surrender. But one day you're going to find out that he will be exalted among the nations and he will be exalted in the earth, that he is coming in judgment and every enemy will be defeated and all resistance will be demolished. And what you better know this morning is that your God is the God of grace, that your God is the God of Jacob, that you are in this fortress that is impenetrable. You are in this fortress that cannot be scaled. This text is not about God being therapeutic. It's about God being ontological. He's not saying be still and be happy. He's not saying be still and feel better. He's saying that I am a God who is coming in judgment to wipe out all who will not see the truth, that I am the God, that I am alone God, and that I will be exalted everywhere, and that I alone will be exalted. And what I'm giving you this morning is the opportunity to be for you to have me with you, for you to know the Lord of hosts who is coming in judgment, for you to know the God of Jacob, and for you to come into the fortress. And you do that by turning to Christ and Christ alone. So I would just challenge you this morning. Be still. Would you just stop? Would you just call a time out in your mind? Would you call a time out in your heart? And would you think about your sin? And would you think about your selfishness? Would you think about what you're looking forward to in this world? Are you looking forward to Jesus Christ coming back? Are you looking forward to Judgment Day? Would you think for a minute, would you just be still and think about what you're worried about? Would you just take a minute and evaluate your life and ask yourself, what is going to matter when I die? Then that is what should matter now. Secondly, I would say not only be still, but be safe. And the only safe place is in Jesus Christ. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Be still, be safe, be in a relationship. Understand that this psalm is about a God who loves enough to warn, to say judgment is coming. I will be your refuge. I will be your strength. I will be the Lord of hosts. I will fight your battles. I am the God of grace. I will bring you into a fortress. I will strengthen you in your interior world. Would you come and be in relationship with me? I would ask you as I close, do you know that he is God? Are you satisfied that he is exalted and not you? And by the way, we have a warped view of God that believes that he should exalt us. And are you ready? Are you ready when judgment comes? This has practical implications for how we live our life. It has practical implications for how we're married, how we relate. It has practical implications for how we spend our money. It, it really does. It impacts every single area of our life. Because quite frankly, folks, most of us, even in our faith in Jesus Christ, are trying to squeeze something out of this world that is going to bring gladness to our hearts. And I want you to ask yourself, as you try to squeeze 
something out of this world through idolatry and get some momentary fleeting gladness from it, would you ask yourself when you make decisions, is this going to matter when I die? If it matters then, it should matter now. You see, you see, some of you are going to leave here and you've developed habits in your life that you know should be judged or you're not in Christ. But you're still going to say, I'm enjoying these habits. I'm enjoying that stuff that I'm looking at on the internet. I'm enjoying that. I can't give it up. I don't want to give it up. Would you think about that? Some of you are struggling in marriage and you may be thinking about getting out. Can, can I ask you this question? Do you think on the day of judgment that God's going to say, way to go. Glad you're happy now, right? Glad you're happy. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I think every one of us needs to look at our life and evaluate our schedules and evalu evaluate our money and evaluate our relationship with other people and evaluate our relationship with Jesus Christ and evaluate uh, our, our relationship to the mission of the church, to the mission of God. And we need to be still and we need to know that he is God and know that he is going to be exalted among the nations and know that he is going to be exalted on the earth. And it is this God that says, come, 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 come to me, come to me, rest in me. I have sent my son and he has been judged for your sin in your place. And when you come to me, live for me. Come to the river, come to the city, come to future hope that trumps anything that we're going through on this planet. Be still and know that I am God.